Armenia, a nation of three million people living between Asia and Europe. Christianity has a long history here, so does tragedy, but so does hope. You're about to hear some rare insider stories of God at work in places you might not expect to find him, plus some biblical advice on negotiating a fair price. All of that and more on today's edition of The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Welcome. Our host is a noted Old Testament scholar, Dr. Charlie Dyer. And I'm John Geiger, wondering about this fair price negotiation thing, Charlie. What's that all about? Uh, John, we're going to go shopping and teach people how to shop in the Middle East uh, using Proverbs <laughs> chapter 20. Okay, that should be great. That's later on in the broadcast. On this opening segment, though, we're looking at current events. Charlie, you comb through all kinds of sources to bring folks the stories they're about to hear. How many sources do you go through typically in a week? You know, it, I look daily, about 10 different sources. I'm a news junkie, and yeah. uh, I try and check as many places in the Middle East as possible to pull up these sources. So it is fun, and uh, I hope people enjoy it. All right, here we go with current events for the week. Israel and Hezbollah have been sending each other not-so-subtle threats and warnings over the past few weeks. What's the real purpose behind these actions? And is a conflict possibly brewing between the two adversaries? You know, right now, neither side wants an all-out war. Hezbollah has enough precision-guided missiles to do significant damage to Israel. Uh, They would likely attack military bases, power stations, the offshore gas drilling platform, and government buildings in their first volley. Israel, in turn, knows where many of those missiles are located, and they would try to destroy as many as possible. It's almost certain that they would go after Hezbollah's political and military leadership, and their air superiority would allow them to cause major destruction to Hezbollah. So a war isn't in anyone's interest, but that doesn't stop Hezbollah from seeing how far they can push Israel before Israel responds. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, Hezbollah fired a surface-to-air missile to try and shoot down an Israeli drone. In response, Israel conducted a three-day military exercise simulating an Israeli response to Hezbollah shooting down one of its aircraft. During this exercise, Israeli planes attacked 3,000 targets in 24 hours, or at least they simulated attacking that many targets. Israel's defense minister and alternate prime minister, Benny Gantz, also issued a stark warning, saying, if a military campaign erupts, quote, Lebanon will shake and Hezbollah will be fatally hurt. Hezbollah's Secretary General Nasrallah responded with his own threat. He said, after all the recent threats from Israel, no one can guarantee that it won't lead to war. Israel will see things it hasn't seen since its inception. Now, do you remember, John, as a child, that adage, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me? Oh, for sure. Yeah, well, that's similar to what's been happening. The words are all rhetoric uh, and rather ominous sounding. Unfortunately, a miscalculation on either side could lead from words to those sticks and stones being thrown. And as I said at the beginning, neither side really wants war, but Each wants the other to know they're willing to fight should the other side cross a red line. I think it's realistic to assume a conflict is brewing, but no one knows when it's going to break out. You see eventual conflict for sure then. I do, and it's going to be one of two ways. One is uh, Hezbollah will shoot down an Israeli drone or fire across the border and strike an Israeli soldier, or Israel will, will attack a shipment of Iranian arms in Syria and then accidentally kill Hezbollah personnel who are at the site. Something like that would require the other side to respond, and any response could very easily spiral out of control. But a second possibility 
is that Iran could order Hezbollah to fire on Israel in response to an Israeli strike against Iran. Hmm. That would lead to a major escalation because Israel would be unlikely to stop until they had reduced Hezbollah's ability to launch future strikes. What we need to do, though, is pray and hope Hmm. the conflict only remains a war of words rather than this modern equivalent of sticks and stones, which are missiles and planes and bombs, which could cause a great deal of harm. Well said. Last week, you talked briefly about the uh, scheduled Palestinian elections. Is the major conflict in these elections between President Abbas's Fatah party and Hamas, or are there other issues in play that could impact the elections? Well, you know, the major issue is between Fatah and Hamas, though it is certainly not the only significant issue threatening these elections. There are disagreements even within the Fatah party itself. Palestinian Authority President Abbas is 85 years old. He was elected to his four-year term 16 years ago. A number of younger individuals within Fatah wanted Abbas to step away and give the next generation an opportunity to provide leadership, but he announced he was going to run, and he's been working to sideline any potential rivals. One of those rivals is Mohammed Dalan, an exiled Fatah official who now lives in the United Arab Emirates. He was expelled from Fatah after Abbas claimed he orchestrated the murder of Arafat. Dalan also faces a $16 million fine and three-year prison sentence if he returns. But there are reports that he's been plotting a comeback. Hmm. Most recently, he arranged through the United Arab Emirates to have 20,000 doses of the Russian coronavirus vaccine delivered to the Gaza Strip. Dalan doesn't have a lot of support in the West Bank to challenge Abbas, but he grew up in Gaza. And it appears as if he's working to carve out a position of power and authority there. And that brings us back to the main problem, the conflict between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. The two sides have yet to agree on how to establish an independent elections court or who will monitor the elections. And they also need to commit not to conduct politically motivated arrests during the campaign. Many see those problems as simply being insurmountable. Which leads finally to the the last issue, the Palestinians who live in East Jerusalem. Israel has said they won't allow Palestinians to openly vote in the land that Israel has annexed as their capital. Now, one simple way around this is to allow those Palestinians to vote absentee or to travel into a Palestinian-controlled area to vote. Hmm. But the Palestinian Authority has said if they can't vote in Jerusalem, there won't be an election. And some think this could provide the ultimate excuse for the Palestinian Authority to call off the elections by blaming Israel. So, so much going on, John. We just need to wait and see what's going to happen. From Moody Radio, this is The Land of the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. We're looking at current events. The pandemic might have stopped tourists from traveling to Jerusalem for the past year, but it hasn't stopped the city from preparing for their eventual return. Tell us about the infrastructure projects now underway to make Jerusalem more accessible for both visitors and regular commuters. Yeah, you know, we've talked in the past about the high-speed train that can now whisk travelers from the airport right to Jerusalem, but that opened just as Israel's borders closed to tourists. And yet, it's ready when tourists are again allowed into the country. However, most tourists heading into Jerusalem do so by bus, and the two main roadways from the west have become notoriously clogged, and that's why the new highway entrance into Jerusalem is so important. Sometime in 2022, Route 16 will take travelers from the Moza Interchange right into the heart of West Jerusalem. Hmm. This new roadway includes double tunnels a mile long that were cut through the mountains. 
The roadway itself is about four miles long with two lanes each way, and traffic will zip into Jerusalem along this new highway at 70 miles an hour. In addition to that new highway, the original Route 1 has been widened at the entrance to the city. Uh, Several lanes exiting the city were reconfigured to eliminate some of the stoplights that were there that were creating congestion. Uh, Pedestrians, private vehicles, buses, light rail, and high-speed rail are going to all optimally meet and integrate at the entrance to the city. Uh, Jerusalem is definitely becoming more accessible, and this will be greatly appreciated by those coming to visit and by those who call the city home. Well, that's great. Well, when David fled to the Philistines to escape from Saul, the king of Gath gave him the city of Ziklag. And now several archaeologists believe that they have uncovered the remains of this ancient city. So, Charlie, where exactly was Ziklag and what have they uncovered? Well, the latest candidate joins a list of about 12 other potential sites vying to be the location of Ziklag, but this one does seem to have some characteristics that set it apart. The actual excavations were done a few years ago, but the most recent announcement is based on a careful study of what was uncovered. Now, the site itself is located just to the east of Kiryat Gat. That's about a mile after uh, those who've been to Israel, if they are heading up from Beersheba, when they exit the toll road heading toward Beit Guvrin, it's about a half mile just east of where you exit that toll road. Hmm. Now, for those who hold to the importance of the biblical text, several items do seem to point to this site as being biblical ziklag. It's seven miles from the site of ancient Gath. Some of the other places are more than 20 miles away. The pottery matches the biblical record. It shows from the 12th to 10th centuries it was Philistine, And then there's a foot and a half destruction layer and then an Israeli occupation layer. 1 Samuel 30 says the Philistines gave the city to David, but when David and his men left to join the Philistines in the fight against Saul, the Amalekites came, overthrew Ziklag, and burned it with fire, and they found that destruction layer. Uh, The carbon-14 dating seems to date everything right to the time of David. So all the details match up, and it's that history that makes this site so exciting. Very interesting. Hey, maybe in the days ahead, that'll be a stop, Charlie. I'm hoping so. Okay. Hey, don't go away. Lots more to come on today's edition of The Land and the Book, including a visit to Armenia, a nation with a long history of tragedy, but also plenty of hope. That's our conversation next on The Land and the Book. Armenia, a nation of three million people living between Asia and Europe. Christianity has a long history here. So does tragedy, but so does hope. You're about to hear some rare insider stories of God at work in places you might not expect to find him. Hey, welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Now, before we jet off to Armenia, let's think about how we can reach out to our Muslim neighbors and friends right here at home. Listen to this. In America, rights, my rights, they're a real big deal. And the subject of rights is an important conversation point with your Muslim friends. Samia Johnson is with Call of Love. What about rights in a conversation that I'm having with my Muslim friends? Oh, John, in the Muslim world, especially among those who don't have connections or women or children, they don't even know the word rights, okay? We in the West expect fact that if someone does us any harm, we need to pay back or we go to court or to the police station. But sadly, in the Muslim world, 
protecting the honor of the family is more important than protecting an individual's rights. And let me give you an example. If a girl is raped in the Muslim world, her family will hush-hush the situation Mm. and not go after the one who raped her so that nobody would know about this. Because if they knew, she would not be married, her sisters would not be married, and they will be abandoned as a family from society. So forget about rights in the Muslim world. It's all about maintaining and protecting honor. So then how do I express my Christian faith in that light from what you've just shared? I don't think you can use a right to do this because even in Christianity, when we stand in front of God, we say, Lord, you gave me this by grace. So we explain to them grace and how God gives us forgiveness and acceptance, even though we don't have the right to gain it. That's Samia Johnson with Call of Love here on The Land and the Book. Dr. Jacob Persley was a youth pastor and then for 15 years a missionary in Turkey. He's also served in Syria and Pakistan. He has a rich history of mobilizing, equipping, and sending Armenians to the Muslim world as missionaries. Think of that. Currently, he serves as missions pastor at Yerevan International Church in Yerevan, Armenia. And did I mention he's also spent time as a Christian martial arts instructor? (laughs) Hey, Jacob, welcome to The Land and the Book. Well, what a privilege it is to be with you today, uh, Mr. Yeager. I appreciate it. I'll be sure not to run into you in a dark alley somewhere with that martial arts stuff you got. Yeah, I, I usually don't advertise that uh, so much, but, you know, it's, it's, it's there. It's a lot of fun. All it's right. a lot of fun. Hey, Jacob, put Armenia on the map for us. Most of us Americans would struggle to pinpoint where you live and serve. You know, that's really true and unfortunate. The reason I say it's unfortunate is because Armenia was the very first nation in the entire world to accept Christianity as their national religion. And they did that in the year 301 AD. So they have this huge, long, rich Christian history. But we in the West, we, we usually focus on the Reformation and Western Christian history and in, in, in Germany and so forth. So we miss out on the, yeah. the rich history we have in Armenia. And it's located, it's a really small country, about the size of Massachusetts. You said 3 million people in the introduction. And we're surrounded by uh, Muslim countries that are majority Muslim. Iran is to our south. We have to our east, Azerbaijan, and to our west, we have Turkey. So it's kind of a unique location to be a light to the nations. Well, one part of your ministry has to do with reconciliation. Reconciliation between what people groups and over what issues? Well, I would say that as a Christian, that's uh, our main ministry is to call people to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And then after that, they're able to reconcile themselves with men. Even if uh, grievous sins were committed against one man from another man. And that's the history here in this region. As you said in your introduction, there was a genocide in this region in 1915 where 1,500,000 Armenian Christians were slaughtered by uh, Turkish and Kurdish Muslims. And so that has been something that's a burden on the hearts of many Armenians because they've never uh, heard from a Turk or a Kurd, we're sorry, we've done this to you, we, we killed your ancestors. And that is another reason why there's a diaspora of Armenians all over the world, and specifically a million or more, and probably two million in, in America, because they fled the genocide. 
and on the Turkish side, they actually deny the genocide. It's actually illegal in the country of Turkey to say that the Turks committed a genocide. So what do they call it then? I mean, what is their explanation for this disappearance of one million Armenians? You know, uh, on the extreme, and this happens a lot, they actually say that the Armenians committed a genocide against them. So they, they flip and uh, they blame shift rather and more than just deny. And on uh, the other side, they'll just say, well, there was a war at that time. You know, that was World War One. And a lot of people died on both sides. But uh, the reality is, is that most countries have recognized the Armenian genocide. It's well documented. There was uh, hundreds of missionaries that documented it, saw it before their eyes. And the result is that uh, they all had to leave Turkey. And that's why Turkey is the largest unreached nation in the world for the gospel. It's 99.9% Muslim. It wasn't like that before the genocide. Hmm. Well, give us a 60-second overview of the spiritual awakening that God has uh, seen to bring about in the Muslim world today. Yeah, I I definitely will. I, I wanted to mention one thing I thought was really important, though, is that there is this, the spiritual awakening is connected to reconciliation. And that is this. When a Turkish person or a Kurdish person leaves Islam, they place their faith in Jesus Christ. They are new creation and yeah. they begin to think new about everything. And they begin to realize that their forefathers actually did commit a genocide against the Armenian people. And over the years, we have seen and been a part of facilitating these reconciliation meetings where the Turks will come together with the Armenians and they will confess the genocide. And they'll say, not only do we want to confess the sin, we ask for your forgiveness. And now can we partner together for the gospel? That's been the most exciting thing I've ever seen in my life. This has happened hundreds of times now in meetings. And that is closely related to the awakening in the Muslim world that is unprecedented in the history of missions to the Muslim world. Hmm. Dr. Jacob personally has spent 15 years as a missionary in Turkey. He's also served in Syria and Pakistan. He joins us today from the capital of Armenia, Yerevan. Well, converting to Christ in a Muslim nation is a whole different experience than here in the USA. So what are the factors that lead to people turning to Christ? Uh, what is their access to the Bible? What kind of role does that play? How do they come to know Jesus? Well, it's a great question. And I actually did a doctoral study on this. This was part of my dissertation. And I found in my study, and this is also in my experience, that the major factor, the most influential factor, is that the Muslim person was exposed to the Bible. They read it. They heard it. They listened to it. And it was that that really was the main factor to change their heart. It was, the, the, as the Word of God says, it's the seed that's planted in our heart. And uh, one of the problems with that is, is with Iran, because in the country of Iran, which is just south of us, it is illegal to have a Bible in the Persian language. So they really don't have a lot of access to the gospel and uh, the Bible in their language. I would say uh, the second most influential factor is uh, that Muslims have been exposed to dreams and visions mm. from Jesus. Jesus. Now, some people think, wow, that's weird. We don't really hear about that in the West. Well, that's actually a, a normal occurrence here. And so you do see that, but that doesn't mean that they become a believer because they saw Jesus in a dream. Um, God's word, the gospel is still preached to them and they're still discipled. So they see a vision of Jesus, but they get sent to a church or a missionary and they hear more th- uh, about the gospel. And it's the gospel that is the power of God to salvation, not necessarily the yeah. dream. And so there's, there's other factors, but uh, those are two major. Well, let's meet some of these precious lives that have been transformed by Christ. Jacob, uh, introduce us to Zaza and the story of the Forgotten Bible. 
Absolutely. So Zaza is actually a people group, an unreached people group in Turkey. They have their own language called Zazaki. And this person became a deacon in our church plant in Turkey. And his conversion was so interesting because this man grew up in a small village. There's no Christians anywhere. I mean, in his province, not even one Christian, you know, out of a million people, not a Christian. So he comes to Istanbul and uh, he works construction and he was taking a walk in a park one day and he looks over and sees this park bench and he sees a book on the park bench. So he walks over. He's like, wow, somebody left something. He picks it up and it says Injil. It says New Testament. And he's like, wow, this is what they say the Christians read. I've never seen one of these before. So he picks it up and he starts reading it and he takes it home with him. And as he reads it, he says, the teachings of this book are amazing. They're Mm. loving. They're peaceful. And that was surprising to him because he was taught (laughs) as a Muslim that, you know, the, the Christians are evil. Their Bible is changed and corrupted. We need to stay away from them. And uh, he was really surprised. Later on, he was invited to a a group where he learned more about Christ. Then he professed faith. What's amazing about this story is this. So we went back to his province about 15 to 20 years later after his conversion experience to share the gospel in all of the villages. And we had a woman on that team. I have to say this because God's sovereignty is amazing. This woman came on the team to join us, and she began to say how she first came to Turkey as a missionary. And she said, you know, I was about 15, 20 years ago. I was at this park. We were doing this uh, evangelism outreach. And I remember, you know, uh, leaving this, this Bible on this park bench. And uh, she had listened to our friend Mehmet, his testimony. And then they began to talk. They're like, wait a second. What year was that? What time of the year was that? What park was it? And it was this woman's forgetfulness of leaving a Bible on the bench that this man, by God's sovereignty, came up, picked up the Bible and began to read it. So, you know, you can think you can make mistakes in God's right. kingdom, but he's, he's got a plan for everything. So that's just one story about how somebody comes to faith. Yeah. Equipping and sending Armenians to the Muslim world as missionaries. That's the mission of today's guest on The Land and the Book, Jacob Persley. Hey, what happens when a Turkish-Bulgarian meets Jesus in a dream? Sounds like another great story, Jacob. (laughs) This was so exciting for me when I first uh, met this man. It was the first time I ever translated from Turkish into English. And uh, he gave his testimony, and when he was a young man, He grew up in a Muslim family. He's Turkish-Bulgarian and never met a Christian, never read a Bible in his life, as most Muslims have not. And then Jesus visited him in a dream one night. And Jesus said to him, you have read the Quran, pointing to the Quran that was in his room. But he said, you have not read my book yet. Go to this city and you will find a church. Go to the church and ask for a Bible. So that was like a direct encounter with Jesus. And Jesus told him what to do. So he immediately went up, went to the city. And found this church, but he was really nervous about going in. You know, this is his first time and getting a Bible. But it happened that that day, that pastor also felt an inclination that he needed to take extra Bibles in his back. He didn't know why, but he did. That morning, they met. The pastor gave him the extra Bible. The pastor explained the gospel in detail, and he was discipled in that church. So that's just another way that we've seen uh, many come to faith here. Jacob, what is your belief about the future of Islam, and what implications are there for Americans? Well, you know, I I was reading in Jeremiah 51, 44, and the Bible there talks about that I will punish Bel and Babylon. I will take out of his mouth what he has swallowed. The nations shall no longer follow him. 
And, you know, that religion lasted 1,800 years. I'm talking about Bel, which was worshipped in Babylon. It was similar to Baalism in Canaan. And that was the greatest religion in the world at the time. And here God is saying it's going to be gone. Nations will no longer follow it. And I, I really believe that this is the time that we're seeing this happen in Islam. There are more Muslims coming to faith right now in Jesus Christ than in any time in history. We have around 7 million Muslims that are now believers in Jesus Christ in the world today. And as I see what the rise of ISIS has done, as I see people that are encountering like real Islam practiced like in, in Iran, when the Iranians come up and they get saved, they're disillusioned with real Islam. And so I see this falling away from this false religion and this false prophet Muhammad. And I believe that we're going to see this. I don't know if I can say soon. So I'm not really concerned mm -hmm. that, you know, it's spreading. It's spreading through uh, procreation. I mean, they're just having large families. It's not those that they're studying. Those that study it, though, they're leaving it in droves. And we actually call those atheist Muslims. Mm. They're rejecting the God of Islam without knowing who the God of the Bible is. In about 40 seconds, what would you like us to pray for you and your ministry, Jacob? I would say right now, uh, we just had a war with uh, in the country of Armenia with Azerbaijan, and we have around 90,000 evacuees and refugees that had to leave their homes. They were destroyed. And I would say there's a, just a lot of sadness, and there's a need for hope in this land. So we're doing a lot of evangelism, distributing Bibles, and helping physical needs of the people that were evacuees from Artsakh, the main area of conflict. So pray for hope in this region and uh, for an awakening in this country, a true awakening, that they would be true lights to their Muslim neighbors. Boy, what a conversation this has been, uh, opening up insights into what God is doing in Armenia as Jacob personally is engaged in sending out missionaries to the Muslim world. we got to connect again, and we got to hear more stories from you, brother. Thank you so much. Again, it's a privilege to be here. May God bless you greatly in your ministry. Well, there's more to come on The Land and the Book. Our next segment features Dr. Charlie's return with a fresh look at a fresh set of questions. Maybe yours here on The Land and the Book. If you have an ounce of curiosity within you, this next segment might just blow you away. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and no, that's not overselling things. If you're curious about the Bible and curious about what other people are wondering about, this is a segment you don't want to miss. You can always connect with us, by the way, and uh, get your question to our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, with a quick email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. What happens is Charlie uh, looks at that email, and then what, Charlie? My goal is to get that answer back to someone as quickly as possible. And then, of course, we just save those files and we use them here on the program. So uh, it's a great way for me to uh, keep myself into the Word of God and, and uh, ministering to people. All right. Our email address, if you'd like to share a question with us, is thelandandthebook at moody.edu. This listener says, I've just read in a New Testament commentary on Romans the word goal used in Philippians 3, 12 through 14, I press on towards the goal. That word strikes me as too modern for a biblical passage. What was the actual term used in the original text, and what meaning does the original terminology carry or suggest? Hey, thank you for providing a program that teaches in such an engaging manner. 
Yeah, and I'll start by saying this. There are actually two words in the New Testament or in the Greek that are translated as goal. Uh, the first one is the word uh, telos. Uh, it's found in uh, a place like 1 Timothy 1.5. It has the idea of end in the sense of reaching the point of termination or, or bringing something to a close. But in Philippians 3, the word that's used is the word skapos. It, it comes from a verb that has the idea of, of peering or looking into the distance, like staring at the finish line in a race. Now, I can't press this too far, but I believe Paul is using an illustration from the Greek games. I say that because he connects the word goal there with winning the prize. And the word uh, he uses for prize comes from those games. Uh, Paul's using an illustration from Greek games here, and I think he does it on a number of other occasions. Uh, So I think the idea of goal there is the idea of seeing that finish line in front of him and reaching that goal, uh, but not in the sense uh, of a modern term, but in the sense of reaching the finish line. James says, I have some questions about the oral law. Where is the scriptural basis for claiming that there is an oral law that Moses gave and passed on to whom, by the way? And would not the existence of an oral law be a guarantee of endless variations in law and rabbinical teaching, giving us the corrupt religious system in place at Jesus' time? Yeah, uh, there's no scriptural basis for Moses giving an oral law in addition to the written law. I believe the idea came into existence to provide additional weight to the rabbinical interpretations that had developed by the time of Jesus. Now, a clear illustration of it is Matthew 15. Uh, The religious leaders asked Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus responded, and why do you break the commands of God for the sake of your tradition? Now, Jesus was clearly distinguishing between what God had written down, his written commands, and the tradition that had developed, which in many cases twisted or violated God's clear commands. Uh, Let me add just two things real quick. First, there were times when God gave other revelation in addition to his word. For example, prophets were raised up to share God's revealed will on specific issues. Uh, Some of those prophecies were later included in the word of God, but others were not. Yet, If someone claimed to be speaking for God, even if they were able to perform a miraculous sign as proof of their revelation, uh, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 13 that if what they announced didn't conform to what God had said in his word, the message was to be rejected. Uh, The second illustration, from the time uh, Satan first appeared to Adam and Eve in the garden and challenged God's revealed word, there have been attempts to corrupt what God has really said by adding to or reinterpreting his word. Uh, That's ultimately what was happening in the oral law, as Jesus made clear, and it's happened in church history as well. One of the cries of the Reformation was sola scriptura, scripture Mm -hmm. alone, as the sole basis of authority. Anything else will ultimately lead to a corruption of God's Word. Just joining us? Well, welcome. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, a noted Bible scholar and Middle East authority. I'm John Geiger, along for the ride, and we're looking at questions that have come into us from listeners who are studying their Bibles, and boy, we love that, right, Charlie? Oh, we sure do. All right, Marcia says, because water is such a crucial element for life, right up there with air and food, I have wondered why God left out the words, and God said, let there be water, and water appeared, and God saw that the water was good, and the evening and the morning were the day. We don't know why God didn't have Moses document those specifics, but I will wonder about it till I find out from God himself. Any any thoughts? Yeah, and actually God did talk about water in connection with creation, though it's not exactly the way you might have suggested. Um, in the seven-day creation account, it begins, the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. 
Uh, the water and darkness represented chaos. So God's creation brought order out of chaos, creating both light and land. Uh, it's interesting, in the book of Revelation, God's new heavens and new earth won't any longer have a sea, and the new Jerusalem will never experience darkness. Now, I, I don't want to get too negative here, because though the water of the seas might have pictured chaos, God still cared for the water needs of the earth as part of his original creation. As the creation account continues, Moses reported that streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground, and in the Garden of Eden, God provided a river of water uh, that flowed out of Eden. It was watering that, that garden. Uh, we also find a parallel in the New Testament. Uh, John shown the river of the water of life clear as crystal that will be flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the street of the New Jerusalem. So I take all that to suggest God did take special care to provide life-giving fresh water as part of his creation and that it will continue into his new heavens and new earth. It's the land and the book brought to you courtesy of this great station. Charlie Dyer, John Gager with you looking at questions from listeners. Uh, from Ron, this question, do you see any significance in the singular use of heaven regarding the future new heaven and earth referred to in Revelation chapter 21 and the plural form of the word heavens used in places like Isaiah 65, 66, and 2 Peter chapter 3, which seem to be describing the same place? Yeah, and I, what I would say first is that's a great observation. Those are the kind of observations that help you dig deeper into the Bible. Now, as I look at those passages, I don't personally see any great spiritual significance in that difference. Instead, it looks to me like it might be based on the different writing styles of the New Testament authors. Now, in the Old Testament, Isaiah does use the plural because the plural best matches the description in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens, plural, and the earth. And so Isaiah uses the plural heavens and singular earth in the same way. Uh, Peter uses both the singular and the plural for heaven in his two books. Uh, twice in 1 Peter and once in 2 Peter, he refers to heaven in the singular, but six times he uses the plural, and that includes this 2 Peter 3 passage you referenced. So Peter's comparing the coming destruction of the current heavens and earth and their replacement with the new heavens and earth. So what he's writing parallels Isaiah, and it also parallels uh, Genesis 1. Now, the key, though, John has a totally different pattern. By my count, he refers to heaven 48 times in the book of Revelation, and 47 times he refers to heaven in the singular. Uh, that includes times when he refers to both heaven and earth together. Uh, so what's happening? I think it seems to be a, a style. Uh, he's using just the singular rather than the plural, and it seems to be unique to John. Now, I don't have a problem with that. God uses the personalities and styles of the human writers and still guarantees that what was written was exactly the words he intended. Now, here's what I do know. Uh, when Greek is taught in Bible college and seminary, some of the first passages students get to translate are from John's writings because his vocabulary and writing style are less complex. And this might just be another example of John using a simpler writing style and referring to heaven in the singular as a result. Great. Thank you. Fred says, my wife and I absolutely love the land and the book. We listen every week. Wouldn't miss it. Hey, thanks. Question, will there be a rebuilt temple, a number three, if you will? We've heard that it would be built before Jesus' return. Any thoughts? 
Yeah, and actually the Bible predicts the coming of two future temples. The first will be built during the tribulation period after the rapture of the church, but before Jesus comes again to earth. Now, I think there's several passages, and let me throw them out and have you look at them. Daniel 9.27, the middle of the seven-year tribulation period, the final seven-year period, uh, it says that in the middle, a man's going to come and put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple, he'll set up an abomination that causes desolation. Uh, sacrifices can only be offered in a temple, so a temple has to be built. Second uh, Thessalonians 2 says the same thing. Paul says the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, still has to come, and he's going to oppose and exalt himself over everything that's called God or that's worshipped. So he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So Paul made it clear there has to be a temple for this individual to come. Now, uh, I said there's two temples coming. The second temple comes after Jesus returns to earth, and it's the millennial temple, and it's described in Ezekiel 40 to 43. So, yes, there are two temples still coming in the future. Well, our journey today on the land in the book is far from over. Charlie's about to take us to a very special place in the land, connected to a very special passage in the book you're never going to forget either, I guarantee it. So stick around for more here on The Land and the Book. Welcome to the final segment of The Land and the Book that's about to feature a devotional from our own Dr. Charlie Dyer, looking at Proverbs 20, verse 14. It has to do with shopping. That's right. You like to shop? Well... Sometimes I don't mind shopping, particularly when you can bargain with a person. That's right, argue, as it were, over the price. I have a lot of fun doing that. Can't do that in a lot of uh, American culture context, but when you travel overseas, as in Israel, well, all bets are off. Believe me, the bargaining just begins. But I'm getting ahead of the story and don't want to steal any of Charlie Dyer's thunder. Let's pause now and take in this Holy Land experience before we get to Charlie's devotional, shall we? Oh, yeah. Hi, this is Jim. Uh, I've been listening to your program. It's great. Uh, I went to Israel a couple years ago, and it was a life-changing experience. I loved it. Love to go back. Haven't had the chance now that I got young children at home, as you can hear. But anyway, uh, uh, everyone that calls in about their experience always says that the Bible came alive. And certainly when you go to Israel, you, you really have a new perspective on reading the Word of God. The thing that was amazing to me was when they talk about how Jesus was in one place and then he was in some other place miles away and the fact that they didn't have transportation and had to walk all around uh, gives you a new perspective when you when you read that and you go from city to city. So uh, I know you guys know this, but the Word of God is living and active and uh, sharper than any two-edged sword. Read the Word. Thanks. Hi, my name's Kimberly. I'm from Chicago. And I was just listening to program on Israel. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to go to the Holy Land, but I just got back from Turkey. And what I saw there was truly inspiring, particularly the cave churches and cities that Christians would hide in, um, first in the Romans and then from the Muslims, and just facing so much persecution and persisting in their faith is truly inspiring. And you go into these cave churches and there's this intense energy that you can immediately feel. I hope you share this thought or something like it on your program. And thanks for listening. Thanks for that Holy Land experience. So 
how good are you at negotiating? Do you like it? A lot of people hate it. Me, I love it. Have a great time. I come alive. You ought to join me sometime when we're buying a car. My wife gets embarrassed, but that's a whole nother story. Charlie, what do you got for us in today's devotional? Based on what I've seen over the years, some trips to Israel are little more than extended shopping tours. Visit a shrine, then stop at my good friend's olive wood shop. Visit an ancient church, then stop at my good friend's pottery store. Walk the Via Della Rosa, then stop at my good friend's t-shirt shop. Instead of singing, I walk today where Jesus walked, you wonder if the theme song for some trips ought to be, I shop today where Jesus walked. Don't get me wrong. Most people want to shop for souvenirs while in Israel, and there are many unique and beautiful items for sale. But some tours seem to visit more stores than sites. I realize I live on the other end of the shopping spectrum, and I've come to understand that some opportunities to shop are important, but not too many. My goal on a trip to Israel is to use every moment to help our travelers understand the Bible more clearly. And this includes helping them gain insight into the modern-day culture, which includes at least a little shopping. Most Westerners aren't accustomed to bargaining for items, so I try to teach them bargaining baseball before we encounter all the peddlers. It goes like this. If the peddler makes eye contact with you, he's on first base. If you're not interested in shopping, don't make direct eye contact. If he can get the item into your hands, he's reached second base. If he can get you to start bargaining, even if it's just to give a ridiculously low offer, he's on third base. And if you come to an agreement on price, he just crossed home plate and you agreed to buy the item. I remember one particular trip I had just given that explanation when the bus stopped. A very dear friend bounded off the bus, looked the first peddler in the eye and said, how much for that sheepskin rug? The shocked peddler didn't answer, so my friend started a one-sided bidding war. $10, $15, $20, $25. The peddler simply handed him the sheepskin and held out his hand for the money. We decided it came off a genuine polyester sheep from China, and we referred to it as the cheapskin rug for the rest of the tour. We got more than $25 worth of laughs from his purchase. Before my groups reach Jerusalem, I also teach our pilgrims the shopping proverb, Proverbs 20:14. The book of Proverbs gives wisdom on how to live life successfully, and Proverbs 20:14 comes right from the streets and markets of ancient Israel. It reads as follows, Bad, bad, says the buyer, but when he goes his way, then he boasts. The thought behind the proverb was that the smart shopper never expressed too much enthusiasm over an item being offered for sale. If you were too excited about it, the price would stay high. But if you didn't appear to be too interested, the seller would be more likely to reduce the price to entice you to buy it. So as you began bargaining, you wanted to appear disinterested and less than enthusiastic. Later, you could boast to your friends about the great deal you got on your purchase. But realistically, what does this proverb have to do with us today? Most of us don't stand in the checkout counter at Sears, Target, or Walmart and bargain with the cashier over the price we're willing to pay for our purchase. So does this proverb have any relevance for us today? Actually, it does. The proverb says far more about life than it does about shopping. Solomon was reminding his listeners not to believe everything they hear. Sometimes people might say one thing while really believing something else. Only later will their true feelings be known. 
They might claim something is bad, but their words might not reflect what they really think about it. Let me move this truth out of the marketplace and into life. As you share your faith with others, they might seem to reject the message and perhaps even get upset with you. But don't believe everything you hear. Their reaction might be their way of hiding their fears or insecurities. They haven't necessarily rejected you or your message. As the shopkeepers of old learned, don't get discouraged by their apparent lack of interest. It might just be a mask, hiding a heart that's seeking spiritual treasure. And the best part of all is that in the marketplace of life, the treasure you have to offer, eternal life, is a free gift. In Isaiah 55, the prophet used the imagery of the shopkeeper in the marketplace to picture God offering eternal life. Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without costs. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Seek the Lord while he may be found and call on him while he is near. Eternal life is free, but it's not cheap. It costs God his only son, and that makes its value beyond compare. Someone has already paid the price, which is why you can offer eternal life as a free gift to those traveling through this marketplace we call life. So don't get discouraged if those you meet appear, at least initially, to reject what you have to offer. I'm not interested. It's not for me. I just don't want it. Their apparent disinterest might hide a heart desperately looking for what you have to offer. Ask God to open their hearts as you continue to share the good news about Jesus. Remember, bad, bad, says the buyer. But when he goes his way, then he boasts. Don't believe everything you hear. And don't get discouraged if people appear to be uninterested in Jesus. Just keep sharing the good news. You know, that's a word that uh, I could use today. We have an active outreach in our neighborhood. I like to do prayer walks up and down the street. And, you know, you pray for these people over a period of months, sometimes years, and you say, is anything happening? Is, is God answering those prayers? Don't get discouraged if people appear to be uninterested in Jesus. Just keep on sharing the good news. Thanks, Charlie. Our website is thelandandthebook.org. We invite you to hear today's program again or share us with a friend. The podcast feature is there for you to share with your friends at thelandandthebook.org. We welcome your email like this one from Eric. He says, I'm listening to your great program on Kinship Radio out of Eagle Grove, Iowa. I feel fortunate that they are now carrying your program. I look forward to it every week. Please keep on doing this. Well, Eric, we intend to do just that as God enables us. Thanks for your kind email. You can connect with us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's a mouthful. I'm going to slow it down, but not before I encourage you to share with us how God is using this program in your life. Maybe it's a question that you heard that uh, was a question you were wondering about. Maybe uh, it's something that you've used in a personal Bible study. Maybe you're a pastor Something that Charlie has shared has opened up a window for you to share with uh, your congregants. But why not let us know about all of that in your email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. I'm John Gager. Thanks for listening. See you next time.